Welcome to the Nightly Five podcast with Ben O'Shea. Welcome to the Nightly Five. All eyes will be on the Victorian seat of Dunkley on Saturday as voters in that electorate head to the polls. Seven News political editor Mark Riley will join me soon to bring you his preview of the by-election. Don't hold your breath for the name of that traitor MP because it looks like the major parties are suddenly united in keeping ASIO's secret. How do you feel about your landlord? Chances are not warm and fuzzy, but TV legend and finance guru David Koch thinks landlords have had a bad rap. Koch is calling in to tell us why. Meanwhile, tech giant Meta has backflipped on landmark content deals with Australian media. What does that say about them and what does it mean for you? And with the NRL season kicking off with a blockbuster doubleheader in Vegas this weekend, we'll count down the top five players in league. We've got a lot to get through today, but let's start with who Koshi thinks is to blame for Australia's rental crisis. The landlords say your rent is lit. He may have to litigate. Don't worry. <laughs> Be happy. Well, being happy with your landlord might have come easy to Bobby McFerrin, but in the middle of a rental crisis, it's probably the last thing a lot of Aussies want to do. Well, finance guru and TV legend David Koch reckons landlords are getting a bad rap and in an excellent column in The Nightly today, even thinks you should love them. And we've got him on the line now. Love your landlord, Koshy. That's bordering on heresy. Next, you'll be saying we should ditch the greedy landlord stereotype. Uh, We should be, Ben. Absolutely, because... If it wasn't for private property investors, um, our housing crisis and our rental crisis would be a whole lot worse. So I, I want to dispel the myth that of landlords uh, having horns and a spiked tail and being the devil um, to the fact that I reckon everyone listening would know uh, a relative or a friend who owns um, an investment property, an investment home unit or or a house that they rent out to other people. In fact, the Australian Tax Office says that's almost 20% of Australians own own a property. And uh, of that, the vast majority, 80% of them, just have one property. And uh, something like 18% have two properties. So the vast majority of landlords are just ordinary human beings like your friends or your auntie and uncle or or your parents or indeed indeed you and and they're doing the heavy lifting in making properties available for people to rent because the government sure as eggs is not and that's the thing that's making my blood boil is that the the politicians use the greedy landlord tag as a way of explaining why they've done stuff all to help the situation themselves. Yeah, well, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, The government's always looking for a scapegoat, always looking for someone else to blame instead of looking in the mirror. And so, but we have seen rents go up and and listeners will be be hearing this and go, well, you know, my rent has gone up. It's gone up, you know, 50% over the past 12 months. Who should we be blaming for the rental crisis? Um, You should be blaming the government and interest rates and uh, that is a ripple effect of the lack of action from federal governments Um, and look there is a shortage of property there's a shortage of property to buy and that's why property values are going up and those with a home loan 
are seeing their repayments go through the roof, just like renters are seeing their rent go through the roof. So it's across the board of anyone involved in property. Now, um, the reason it's there's no magic bullet to it, but governments are not reduce are not um, allocating enough land for new development. We've had 500,000 new Australians arrive in this country in the last 12 months through our migration program, but there has been no planning for them to either rent or buy properties. There's been no anticipation of this. Um, is there a co coordinated approach between the federal government, the state governments who, reduce, who produce and allocate land for development and councils who provide building approvals? Absolutely not. Building approvals, which is all the land, all the properties coming onto the market over the next two or three years to hopefully solve this crisis, are at 10-year lows. So this housing and rental crisis is not going to be solved anytime soon because there's new, no new properties coming onto the market. And what I'm saying is governments pull your finger out, coordinate amongst each of you and take responsibility for this because if you start bagging current uh, landlords and private investors, they're going to go, oh, I'm being vilified here. I'm being hated in the community. I'll sell my property and I'll go and buy shares or put my money into term deposit because it's going to be a lot easier. If you start changing the rules on me, I'll just get out of it. And that will just accentuate the crisis for years to come. Yeah, I think I think the government certainly banks on the fact that when they say the word landlord, people imagine some kind of property baron with a vast portfolio. Mm. And, and as you just said, that's not the reality. The reality is very different. It's mum and dad investors who maybe who mostly only have one property. Yep. And so and now we've kind of got a better idea of what the problem is. How do you see this current okay. rental crisis unfolding over the next few years? What's your outlook? Okay, what I it's going to get a lot worse, a lot worse. And um, property prices are going to, for um, uh, people who want to buy a home, is going to get um, get worse because it it's not rocket science. It's demand and supply. It's very simple. It's what we all learned when we did commerce in year 10 at high school that drives property prices. Um, there's massive demand through migration um, for um, new properties, um, but there's not enough stock coming on. There's not enough new properties to do it. So rents get forced up and uh, property prices get forced up as we all compete against each other to get these scarce listings that come up. We're fighting, we're, we're in the queue trying to, with 30 other people for a rental property, and everyone's bidding up the price to get ahead of the rest of the people in the queue. That's what the market does. So what the governments have got to do is say, we need a coordinating body. We want some, we need somebody to look at how much land is allocated and where for new housing developments. Um, a independent group that says, X council picks out the councils and says, why are you making it so hard 
to for people to um, to build new houses or to build no property uh, new properties, and let's streamline the whole thing. At the moment, we have three levels of government involved. They don't know what the um, each of um, the different ones are doing, and they're not prepared to make the hard decisions. They want to be the good cop, not the bad cop. The bad cop is the landlord. They want to just be everyone's friend without making hard decisions for the future. Yeah, look, all too common when we're talking about politicians. Hard decisions are pretty rare indeed. Now, I'd encourage everybody to get on to the nightly.com.au to read Koshy's opinion piece. Might just change your mind on a very hot-button issue. David Kosh, thanks for joining us on the Nightly Five. Good on you, Ben. Thank you. We hope to get a good result in the Dunkley by-election and everyone in Dunkley will know that we wanted every single taxpayer in Dunkley to get a tax cut. That's PM Anthony Albanese answering a question put to him this week by our next guest. Seven News political editor Mark Riley penned a brilliant analysis of what's at stake for Dunkley and he joins me now. Mark, predicting election results is a fraught business these days, but that's why they pay you the big bucks. So I'm just going to ask you straight, (laughs) who wins Dunkley? Yeah, a fraud business and a fool's fool's errand. Well, Labor should win Dunkley. There's no doubt about that, Ben. Uh, it's a 6.3% margin. Look, and it's uh, an area of the Mornington Peninsula southeast of Melbourne where in the last state election, which is a reasonable guide, very little changed. And uh, Labor holds most of the overlapping state seats along this, what they call the Frankston Line, of electorates down south of Melbourne. So on the night of the, of the Victorian state election, we we're watching very closely. You see how the Liberals polled here to see whether there was any chance of Daniel Andrews losing. It didn't shift a vote and uh, this area remained very solidly Labor. Now, there are big differences, as you know, between what happens at a state level and what happens at a national level. The other issues about this by-election here that are different is that you had a very popular local member, Peter Murphy, who so tragically died of breast cancer young. She was only 50. She might have left a big mark on the electorate here. There is a lot of, um, of, of, uh, of emotion and passion in this electorate. And uh, there was a, a lot of a big connection, personal connection between Peter Murphy and the, the electors here. And I think that will play into things as well. But the Liberals have a local candidate who is also the mayor of the, uh, the biggest uh, city in this area, Frankston. Uh, and uh, he is um, number one on the on the ticket today, which is uh, tomorrow, which also helps if you're at the top of the ballot paper. So there are there you know there are bits pros and cons either side. Six point three percent margin, a swing above that would be a real kick in the pants for Anthony Albanese. He's hoping those tax cuts that he got through the parliament, and that was the answer to that question that I asked him just on uh, on Tuesday night. Uh, four days before the election here. Was that just a coincidence or was it timing? And I, I sort of, you know, got the subtle feeling from that answer that you just played that three Dunkleys in the first sentence told me it was all about Dunkley. <laughs> yeah, I think you might <laughs> be right. Uh, and so here's, here's a question for you that I've been trying to figure out about this Dunkley by-election because there is so much writing on it that goes far beyond this particular electorate. Does Albo gain more from winning and winning big or does Dutton stand to lose more with a loss? 
Look, I think it's probably the other way around. I think, um, frankly, look, for prime ministers, you always want to hang on to seats, particularly those that, which you hold. And for opposition leaders, you'll take anything. I mean, Peter Dutton today was lowering the bar of expectations for himself. He was saying that, oh, a swing of 2 or 3% would be an absolute disaster for Anthony Albanese. Now, you know, the, most uh, uh, pundits believe that this, there will be a swing of at least something like that against the, against the government. But um, so he's really setting a, a low expectation for himself, hoping to exceed it. If he wins the seat, it'll be a great boost for Peter Dutton and an and endorsement of what he and his supporters have been saying sort of sort of around Canberra over the last several weeks and months that the polling is starting to move in his favour. He actually said quite boredly at a press conference or a doorstop I was at here in Dunkley today, uh, early this morning, that, you know, I'm more popular than the Prime Minister at the moment, according to the polls. When you have to say that yourself, <laughs> you know that other people aren't <laughs> saying it for you. So I think there's probably more for him to win and everything to lose for a Prime Minister, because at the moment, the electorate's really looking at Anthony Albanese 18 months in from the federal election, saying, is this the guy that we elected? And is, you know, who is this fellow now? And, um, you know, it's not that they don't, they, you know, they're, they're, they're questioning their decision, but they're saying, who are you going to be as a prime minister now that you've settled into the job? Because the person in the office always changes. It's interesting that the, you know, the the, the weight of office, that, that heavy, wet sack of responsibility around their shoulders tends to change the individual, necessarily changes the individual because of the, you know, the eminent responsibility they take on in the office. So, yeah, it's a time for electors, at least here in Dunkley, to have a fresh look at Anthony Albanese and say, you know, who is this Prime Minister? Is he doing the things that we want him to do? Do we forgive him for breaking his promise, breaking his word and his bond on the stage three tax cuts because he is giving us more money? And I think the answer to that is yes. In, in, in the polls are telling us that. And is he the person we expect him to be? A really interesting read, a litmus test on that and other issues tomorrow night nationally. Yep, and that's exactly the sort of analysis that you can find in Mark's excellent piece on the nightly.com.au. I encourage everybody to give it a read before the voters head to the polling booths in Dunkley tomorrow. Seven News political editor Mark Riley, thanks for joining me on the Nightly Five. Great pleasure, Ben. See you, mate. Designed to target news organisations but inflexing its virtual muscle, Facebook also suspended critical health department sites right in the thick of the Delta outbreak. Domestic violence groups, charities and other government services all caught up in its cyber tantrum. You might remember back to 2021 when Facebook parent company Meta signed a content deal with Australian media outlets. Before that, Meta had played the bully, turning off the Facebook pages of news outlets, which backfired spectacularly when the company inadvertently turned off pages for emergency services organisations. At the time, it proved Meta was not all that interested in being good corporate citizens. But the content deal was a sign that maybe they could be better. Those hopes were dashed today when the company backflipped on that content deal. Here to explain is Editor-in-Chief of The Nightly, Anthony DeSegli. Anthony, what has Meta done today? Yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, in that lead-up that we heard about being good corporate citizens, you said it yourself, um, you know, I think there was the term we heard was um, throwing a tantrum. I mean, what's happened today is that Meta has let news organisations know that they will not be renewing their content deals. Um, we're in Australia under the News Bargaining Code, um, 
and it's got a lot of people upset, including the Albanese government, even though it inherited the code from the Morrison government, the Albanese government has made it clear that it supports and, and stands by that code. And now, the original content deal was the result of a lot of work behind the scenes um, by the coalition government at the time, because the issue was around big tech companies using news content on their platforms and not paying for it. Uh, how you going back to that period? How did it come about that this content deal got over the line? Yeah, well, look, it's a good question in the sense that obviously probably one of the main architects of it was Josh Frydenberg, mm. former treasurer Josh Frydenberg, who isn't in federal politics at the moment, and you know it would be. He wrote a piece a couple of days ago talking about how important it was, and it would be a real shame if Facebook um, was to go back on that deal. And, of course, at the time, there were some really good anecdotes flying around about how Josh got the deal done over a weekend. He spoke directly to Mark Zuckerberg, who's obviously the Facebook founder and, and runs Meta, which owns Facebook. Um, so really interesting stuff. The good news today, I guess, if there, if you can take any silver lining from it, is that the government, the, the Albanese government, has come down hard and said that they will bring Facebook to the table to discuss what's going on. And so it seems to me that the gist from Meta in this decision is that they don't see news being valuable on their platforms? Well, it's a really interesting explanation, I think, from Facebook. So what Facebook says is that no one uses the Facebook News tab, which is true, right? Not many people do use the Facebook News tab, but that's because people put news into their normal, regular feed. Um, and I don't know about you, and, and look, I'm a journalist, so it makes sense, but I think if you talk to anyone, any punter in Australia, and you ask them, do you see news in your Facebook feed, they will 100% say, yeah. yes, I do, and I click on it, and I share it, and I talk about it, and it's one of the main ways I consume news. So Facebook very delicately talks about a thing called the news tab yeah. that nobody uses, but doesn't talk about news in your actual regular feed. Yeah, like to me, their argument feels a little disingenuous. And so, and, and at the time, you know, in 2021, uh, Google was involved as well, and they sort of went the different way, right? Like they were proactive in doing a deal with Australian media and have formed a partnership that has turned out to be quite successful. Yeah, it has been very successful. The Google partnership with Seven West Media, for example, cuts across many layers, very successful, is ongoing, and, and to the point where they even do a really cool thing Seven West Media is part of it. News Corp is part of it, where they do a cadet training program. Um, so they actually help sort of bring up the next generation of journalists as well. Yeah, which to me seems obvious. Like the, the idea that, that somehow we're natural enemies with big tech doesn't make any sense at all when the content we know is so effective in bringing eyeballs to their platforms. So how do you think this is going to go? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the big players, are Nine, Seven West Media, obviously... News Corp, like, they will be okay, right? Um, my fear, and I think the fear of every Australian should be how this affects the little guys. Um, and so, you know, it could mean less regional journalism. It could mean less local journalism. It could mean less niche journalism. And I think it would be really sad to see those platforms go. Um, and I think that's the thing the government should fight for as well as fighting for everything else. They need, you know, we need more journalism in this country. The Nightly is a very good example of that. We need more journalism more platforms. We don't need less. Yeah, and you can see the full coverage on thenightly.com.au. Editor-in-Chief of The Nightly, Anthony DeSegli, thanks for joining me on The Nightly Five. Thanks, man. I have confidence in ASIO. I have confidence in the Director-General. Uh, I've seen the statement which he it has issued, 
and I have nothing to add. I will support our national security agencies. And I think that all sides of politics should do that. That's Anthony Albanese backing ASIO boss Mike Burgess's call to keep the identity of the so-called traitor MP a secret. We've been following the story this week after Burgess bizarrely used a public speech to reveal an MP had sold out to a foreign spy network. Initially, opposition leader Peter Dutton called for the name of the MP to be revealed, which is pretty much what the whole of Australia wants. But today it seems as though the major parties in Canberra are in agreement that staying mum on the issue is the way to go. Why, you ask? Well, Burgess is is now saying that revealing the identity could compromise the ASIO sources that we used to gather the information in the first place. And sure, there might be some truth to that. But the only problem is Burgess has already revealed it was an MP. So I'd say the foreign spy network involved probably has a fair idea who it is. Unless, of course, there are so many traitor MPs on their books that they can't keep track. That seems a bit far-fetched, but not nearly as far-fetched as the idea that you could hint at an MP spy and then provide no further details. That makes no sense at all. Flat pass there for Cogger. Cleary working off him again. Beats Capewell. Wants support. Leona is there. The Panthers have life. Great work by Cogger and Cleary. The NRL season kicks off with a bang thanks to a blockbuster doubleheader in Las Vegas on Sunday, Australia time. And what better way to get you excited about the season ahead than with the most divisive of exercises, ranking the NRL's best players. And here to do that and cop a mountain of flack from league fans is sports editor at the Nightly, Ben McClellan. Now, Ben, you know you're on a hiding to nothing, right, compiling a list like this? I stand by the list. I think, I think I think we here on the nightly sports team have done an unbelievable job. We've crunched all the numbers, been watching replays. Um, yeah, I thought this is a pretty solid list. I'm gonna I'm gonna stand by it. Are you gonna upset someone? So let's put yes. your head on the chopping block. Sure. Now, you've got a list of the top 20 players to watch in the NRL in 2024, and that's yep. available uh, at thenightly.com.au. Mm-hmm. But let's count down the top five today from five to one. Sure. Who have you got at number five? Uh, well, he didn't. He didn't have a super duper 2023, but we've got Cameron Munster. Um, now, most most NRL fans will know Cameron Munster is you know a Melbourne Storm uh, supremo, also uh, a Queensland Maroon uh, superstar. And basically, when the game's on the line, you know you want Munster to have the ball in hand. He's also very gritty in defence um, and doesn't mind a scrap, which um, which is probably true of most of the guys in this, <laughs> in this top 20 list. So we've got him at number five. He's mercurial, isn't he? Yes. Munster. He's one of these guys that. If he has his mind turned to it, he can take over a game and be the absolute difference, whether it is at the NRL level, at the state of origin level, absolutely, or for Australia, an excitement machine. You just don't know what you're going to get from one week to the next. But that's part of the reason why he is a player to watch. All right, who's at number four? Uh, Payne Huss, uh, the Man Mountain uh, from Brisbane. So he's been a, a mainstay at the Broncos for five years. Um, he did have a bit of a, I guess you would say, uh, probably more a negotiating tactic than anything else. But in 2022, he claimed he wanted to, a release from the club, but then subsequently signed quite a long lucrative deal. Um, so that might have been a, a tactic by his uh, management. Uh, but he just goes from strength to strength. He's an absolute monster of a man. He's impossible to uh, tackle. He's impossible to get by. And he's just proven that he's probably the leading prop um, in the NRL at the moment. Yeah, and has been so huge, literally, uh, to the Broncos' success mm. um, over the past uh, 18 months or so. Uh, okay, now we're into the top three, the yes. pointy end of this list. Who have you yes. got at number three? 
Kalen Ponger. Superstar. Superstar. Uh, Newcastle Knights, they had a very interesting 2023 season, had an absolutely shocking first half, then had an absolutely ridiculously great second half. Uh, he took them deep into the finals. He even snagged himself the uh, Daly M medal, uh, which many thought should have gone to uh, Kiwi Renaissance man, Sean Johnson. Uh, but yeah, he's an absolute superstar of the game. There's obviously a lot of concern about the enormous amount of pressure that been placed on him at Newcastle. Uh, having seen some recent uh, photos of him, uh, Kalen is cut this year. The guy's looking big. He's got the <laughs> well, arm. He's cherry ripe. He's, he's got the arm tats. He's ready to go. So, so I think he's in for another bumper season. Um, and hopefully Newcastle um, will will have will have a good hit out this year because when Newcastle do well, it's good for rugby league, particularly in New South Wales, for those regional cities to be doing well. Um, and obviously, as we know, Newcastle is synonymous with Andrew Johns, uh, probably the uh, the greatest rugby league player of all time, some would say. Yeah, absolutely. And now at number two, yes. this is a real superstar at such a young age. The mm. future is so bright for this player. Yeah, Reese Walsh. I mean, he's just an absolute entertainment machine, this guy. Uh, he's a fullback. For, uh, for the Broncos and for Queensland and uh, you know he, he would have been uh, one of the one of the leading uh, lights to be looked back on at the grand final if the Broncos had won he had he had an unbelievable unbelievable game but yeah he's just, he's just a standout star still very young and so he's got a lot of football ahead of him and and we expect to see him to probably cement himself hopefully as one of the um, one of the sort of greats of the game in years to come yeah absolutely he was absolutely flawless at the state of origin um, last year and uh, already is one reason to be excited about that contest this time around. Uh, and now at number one, this 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 spot is probably mm. almost kind of obvious, right? Yes. Like there's there's a player who people love to hate, yes. but even if you do hate him, you've got to admit that he's pretty bloody good. He is the chin, the man himself, <laughs> Nathan Cleary, uh, the, the, the Penrith superstar. Uh, you know, turned in probably arguably the best grand final performance of all time, even if it was only mm. 20 minutes, where he you know, saved the Penrith Panthers and got them their third title. Um, you know, he's, he's unfortunately not been able to repeat such success with New South Wales, but he's just, you know, he's just a king of the game, has an unbelievable kicking game, knows when to make the passes at the right moment, and obviously is very good at rallying his team. And it's evident from last year's grand final, everybody thought the Panthers were done. He definitely hadn't lost hope dug deep, got them over the line, which is what the superstar players do. Yeah, absolutely. And you can get the other 15 names on this top 20 list of NRL players to watch in 2024 at au. Sports editor Ben McClellan, thanks for joining us on the show. And remember to leave your comments, but keep them clean. And that, folks, is today's show. We'll see you again on Monday. The Nightly Five podcast is brought to you by 7 West Media. For all these stories and more, head to thenightly.com.au helping you get in front of tomorrow.